Okay, ready? And action. Hello. Hi. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, Quentin Tarantino presents a death-proof Jackie Brown. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam... uh, Thomas? And I'm Thomas Mariani. I'm your bail bondsman. And uh, that's a serious offense. I think your son really needs to shape up. Thousand dollars. Wow, you really got a fucking racket going, because I don't need to have a son, but I believed every word of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, best Supporting Actor nomination, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, welcome to the Double Edge Devil Bill, everybody. Uh, we are not the only two people here, though. We're the regulars, but we got ourselves a guest all the way over there. Um, he's coming in with a bag that I'm sure is full of so much money and not a bunch of romance novels. It's Christian... Alvarez. Christian, how are you? Hi, Thomas. I'm doing pretty good. I'm very honored to be able to talk about the pleasures of cinema with you guys this week. But only really obscure, like, kung fu grindhouse movies that nobody knows about, right? I mean, of course. How can you not? Yeah, take it down a notch, buddy. This is gonna get really, really bad for you. (laughs) You're gonna be disappointed. (laughs) I'm kidding. You know what? We We have fun, don't we, Thomas? We have our fun, of course, and we're gonna have fun tonight discussing um in honor of once upon a time in hollywood is coming out the week we're releasing this episode we are doing quentin tarantino's filmography and you know it 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 might shock you but there might be other you know groups of like white guys that talk about quentin tarantino movies on the internet what (laughs) no i mean people that are interested in film talk about quentin tarantino to an annoying degree No. no we're trend setting (laughs) <laughs> exactly. No one's ever done this in the 27 years he's been making fucking movies. Well, we're the only movie review podcast, too. So that's, that's true. We, we got going for us. We, we are the number one because we're the only one. <laughs> we murdered the rest of them, <laughs> allegedly. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Quentin Tarantino been making movies since Reservoir Dogs um, and is coming out with his ninth feature. It's weird to think he's only made about nine features in that nearly 30-year span. And he keeps threatening, like, oh, I'm going to stop after 10, or I might stop after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or I don't know, I might make a Star Trek movie, which is still uh, something in the cards right now. <laughs> which is just ridiculous. But I'm just going to throw it out there. What are your guys' hopes for this uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? What are you thinking? First uh, first thoughts. Um, the most encouraging words I've heard so far is that it's more of a chill movie, which... I think is more of a strength of Tarantino for me. I think his earlier movies, even though obviously Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction have a lot of madcap stuff that happens in there, the best moments of those movies usually tend to be the more kind of quiet, like, hey, let's hang out and talk kind of moments. And Mm -hmm. I think he's kind of lost doing that a bit more. There's obviously big dialogue scenes still in his more recent movies, but I think they've 
leaned way more on like, hey, let's have the big genre over the top thrills. And I think that's been a crutch he's been playing a lot, especially the last couple movies. So the yeah, idea of like I, I kinda agree with that, yeah. The idea of sort of like a Hollywood sixties hangout movie is good in my book. Yeah, you know, I agree with you on what you said, uh, but I did see, you know, Brad Pitt fighting Bruce Lee. That's a little silly. But Christian, please. I'm kind of cautiously optimistic about this one. Like Thomas said, like there have been a lot of over-the-top genre thrills in his latest movies, and I am hoping that this one can show a little bit more of his reserved side. I will say that I am excited to see... uh, I forget the actor's name, but the portrayal of Bruce Lee... I mean, does he look the shit or what? I mean, he he sounds just like him. He looks exactly like him. You know, it looks like they just pulled Bruce Lee off the set of Green Hornet at -hmm. at some point. But yeah, cautiously optimistic, you know, that Tarantino has a lot of issues with doing things historically accurate. Aren't Sharon Tate's, like, family members still alive, like her sister at least? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So, I'm hoping he doesn't really play too much with the history of that. Not only do I hope that they're just like, oh, Sharon Tate and Leonardo DiCaprio end up murdering Charles Manson, but it's also like, I hope he doesn't overly glorify the Manson feelings. I, I agree with you. I, I was definitely worried that it was going to go in a Glorious Bastards route, maybe, where, you know, they kill Hitler and all that stuff. But the thing about the Manson murders is the Manson murders was the end of the hippie movement. I mean, it changed the entire country. It's an important thing that happened in a, in a very perverse and sick and cynical way. But it's important. I think it's also very important that it is shown... Not necessarily graphically, but in the way that it happened and what the outcomes of that were. I don't think that he'll change that because I think that that's also very ripe for a Tarantino-style film. But I also don't want him to glamorize it at all. Agreed. I think what it's he's probably more interested in is what you're mentioning is just sort of like the end of the 60s era, which we haven't seen the movie. We don't know necessarily. Sure, sure. But it feels like it's definitely more yeah. like, how did this end the 60s era, especially when we're focusing on DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, who play like movie stars that have turned to TV at this point, who were kind of down their luck at that time when that was a thing. So it feels almost like they're kind of like reflecting also the end of a particular era and the Manson murders was sort of like the unfortunate punctuation point to all that. And plus, admittingly, like, even the, the one huge historical inaccuracy he's done with, like, the Inglorious Bastards Hitler thing, I'd argue, like, at least it's, like, it's a revenge fantasy that, like, I don't know if it's going to offend a huge amount of people, necessarily. No, no one no one cares about seeing Hitler getting shot in the face. Yes, and by the way, um, that actor who you were mentioning who plays Bruce Lee in that movie is uh, Mike Moe. Yes, he is a martial artist, I think, in real life, and he looks the part. And it, I was just amazed seeing like his training regimen for it well so i I guess generally moving from just this upcoming movie um what are your feelings on you know tarantino's career overall christian are you kind of like what we're talking about where it's like you kind of prefer the older movies or do you still have a lot of fun with the more recent ones especially what kind of drew you to be on this particular episode uh well like any young man that has studied movies and filmmaking uh, throughout his youth, I definitely had a Tarantino phase where I was just like, 
Tarantino is the greatest movie maker of all time. And now that I've kind of grown older, I can definitely see a lot of his excesses and a lot more of his flaws in his filmmaking. But I do still feel like he is, for lack of a better term, maybe an event filmmaker. Because whenever he comes out with a movie, he tries to make it into an event. So I do feel like I was interested in coming on this one because this is a movie that, you know, isn't a huge genre movie that I'm like, yeah, I'm actually really interested in this one. But yeah, with Tarantino, I feel like I definitely enjoy a lot of his older movies because I feel like he was more willing to work with dialogue and his editing wasn't seen as such a trope at that point. For probably a lot of people our age, Thomas, I first got into him with the first Kill Bill movie. That's ageism. <laughs> we don't stand for that here. <laughs> oh, you know, I was in my crib. My dad was watching Reservoir Dogs on VHS, and that's what that led me fucker. to this point in my life. <laughs> I mean, that that was I, th- I think that was kind of like the first time at least we kind of hopped on the train in terms of, like, there was a huge gap between one of the movies we're talking about today and Kill Bill. He took like a solid five-year gap between making movies, pretty much, and then was a bit more consistent from there. But, I mean, I, I guess I would generally agree. I think I still remember the first uh, thing I watched was Reservoir Dogs, but it was a whole thing where, like, I was at a friend of my dad's place because we were staying over. I think it was, like, in we were visiting D.C., and they went out drinking, and I was a kid. And I was just like, well, no one else is around here. What does he have as, like, movies on board? And I'm like, oh, what's this Reservoir Dogs movie? And I was like, probably 12. And oh boy. Like, yeah, that was fun. That uh, that was interesting um, introduction, as it were. Like, it was for a lot of people, obviously, in 92. And I'm sure Adam, as the old man who was trying to get out of his rocker, uh, yeah, you right, right. were kind of on to the wind back in uh, aught 92 when uh, this whole thing started, right? Well, well, I saw Pulp Fiction first. Like, I knew of Reservoir Dogs and everything. It was, like, the indie darling movie and everything. But it was kind of hard to find when it first came out for, like, home video and stuff. Like, so I saw Pulp Fiction, and Pulp Fiction was, like, the movie because of the infamous, you know, rape scene and things. Like, people were like, oh, my God, it's crazy. Like, people stormed out of the theater or whatever. So I had to fucking see it, plus the cast. So I watched that, and I instantly went and bought Reservoir Dogs. I found it at, like, a record store. And uh, ever since then, I, I am a huge fan of Tarantino, um, but not to the point where a lot of people are. Like, I'm not crazy. Like, he cannot be touched. He's definitely made some missteps. But I'm going to go on and say that the one bad choice we're talking about, I would not consider one of them. Okay, so I guess that's as good a transition as anywhere. Our two films, because those of you might be new, at the end of our last episode, we picked two movies because Adam had technically two good choices, usually. We'll talk about that in a second. And I had the two bad choices that were related to Quentin Tarantino's filmography. And our good pick is the 1997 film, his third film, Jackie Brown. Uh, and then I have, for my choice, was his... I guess technically fifth or fourth, depending on how you count the Kill Bill movies, uh, film Death Proof, which was part of the Grindhouse double feature that came out about ten years after Jackie Brown. Uh, So we're seeing a pretty big swarth in terms of his um, sort of career trajectory points. But let's go ahead and get into the discussion of our first film, Jackie Brown. Okay, ready? And action. Pam Greer is Jackie Brown. What do a stewardess 
a gunrunner, a bail bondsman, an ex-con, a federal agent, and a beach bunny have in common. They're all chasing a half million in cash. There's only one question. Who's playing who? Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. So, Jackie Brown came out in 1997, December 25th, 1997. Um, all the families gathered around to watch Jackie Brown that Christmas. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is written and directed by Tarantino, and it is the only film of his, as of yet, that he has made that is adapted from previous source material, because it's based on a novel by Elmore Leonard called Rum Punch, uh, which he did change a few things, specifically Jackie herself. Um, her last name was Burke in the original story, and she was also a Caucasian character, and he changed her mouse to suit Pam Greer. And Adam, you did something that has not been done in the... 62 previous episodes that we've done mm-hmm. of the show when uh, you had your two good choices you bucked the trend and said you were only going to have jackie brown as either two choices you were so dead set on covering this film yes. why was it so important that we cover this one i feel that out of the nine tarantino films and as we've already alluded to before as much as people talk about tarantino and you know just go nuts over his filmography that this is the one that kind of gets left in the dust for some reason. And I, I literally don't understand why I, I think this might be now, you know what? No, think fuck it. Let's commit. This is my favorite Tarantino movie. I think wall to wall. It's full of style, great acting. The soundtrack is just fucking killer. And he gives these actors, not not including like the heavyweights like De Niro and Jackson, but Pam Greer, Robert Forrester, even Bridget Fonda, these actors who were maybe not considered to be great or forgotten, and, and they're fucking phenomenal in it. I think this is his perfect movie. I really, really do. There's not one thing in this movie that I think a lot of people could find offensive other than maybe the use of the N-word and some of the violence, but... I, I just think this is a perfect crime caper, drama, thriller, whatever you want to call it. I, I, I just, I fucking love this movie and no one ever brings this up when they talk about Tarantino. It's either Pulp Fiction or Kill Bill, usually. Right, or some of his more recent movies, when especially talking about some of the use of language uh, once he gets uh-huh. to like a Django. That's a huge topic of conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, for sure. But uh, Christian, what are your thoughts on Jackie Brown? Well, like Adam said, it is the only Tarantino movie that people don't really gush over, which that just completely confuses me. I feel like this is his best work for acting, especially, because you not only have mainstays of his uh, filmography like Samuel Jackson, but you get uh, Michael Keaton shows up in there. And it's a fairly small part, but, you know, it does show that, you know, Keaton did definitely have the chops that he's shown in his later career. Uh, You see Chris Tucker, of all people, show up in a cameo, and this is when he's doing movies like The Fifth Element and everything as really over the top and he comes off fairly reserved in this with Jackie Brown. I feel like it definitely has, you know, a lot of the glamor shots and everything. Uh, 
I do really love the scene where Robert Forrester is driving back to his office and uh, it's shown side by side with Jackie and uh, Ordell talking with one another. Then as soon as he opens his glove box, he sees his gun is missing. And then Jackie Brown ends up ends up like cocking the gun <laughs> like at Ordell and everything. I felt like that was a really, really well paced scene and everything. And for a first timer, everyone's just like, why are they showing like him going back to his office? And then that's the reveal, particularly for someone like De Niro in this movie. It's a very interesting turn for him, especially since he was coming off movies like Casino, Heat, Sleepers and everything. This seems fairly reserved for De Niro in that time. Yeah, it's also, I would argue, this is a controversial statement. I think it's peak De Niro face. In terms of the faces he makes throughout this whole movie or so phenomenal, particularly when he's getting his little private show um, to baby love, um, the face he's making when he's just rocking in that chair is priceless. Um, but it's also kind of like, it feels it's in tone with something like Heat or Casino, because this sort of like mid to late 90s era for De Niro feels like him embracing his sort of middle age at this point. Because before that, he was still just kind of like, no, I'm like Cape Fear, I'm still pumping iron and all this other shit. And then by the time you get to like Heat and then eventually to this movie, he's kind of like, eh, I'm embracing the schlubbiness a bit more. In a way that he also doesn't do that often where it's just like, he's a complete fucking idiot in this movie. And it's so great. Oh, I love that he is a complete moron. I 100% agree. I think this might be, as far as De Niro, his last really kind of memorable performance. You gotta figure he's popping up in, in Bad Grandpa and things like that. I, I think De Niro fucking rocks the shit in this movie. Well, I, yeah, I would definitely say so. To I agree with a lot of what Christian said in terms of my overall thoughts on the movie. Um, it's definitely his most underrated movie. And I think this watch was the one where I've been struggling constantly with like, oh no, Pulp Fiction's still so great, and there's still struggling there. I'm a huge fan of Kill Bill Volume 2, that's a controversial statement. Oh no, I... god damn it, Thomas, I love you. That's why we do this podcast. <laughs> I know. I think um, it's an infinitely better film than Kill Bill Volume 1. Yes, I agree with that, but I think this was the watch that made me realize I think this is his best film. If nothing else for the fact that he never quite leans into some of the stuff that in his two earlier movies, feel kind of like, oh, I'm a young, up-and-coming director, I want to shock and throw out the volume. And then later on, he would kind of be like, I'm a middle-aged guy who also wants to shock and throw all this out because I'm having a midlife crisis, basically. Kevin Smith. <laughs> what? Another director that came up around that time? What else right. are you going to say next? Robert Rodriguez is losing his touch? <laughs> Never. Never. <laughs> Adam. But I think it's also, it's just the best use of actors i completely agree with what christian was saying earlier it's such a phenomenally well cast movie and nothing else it's probably the best example of like tarantino is just letting you live in this like really sort of sad crime world like it's not glamorized at all we kind of talked about how like oh you might worry that he would glamorize some of the crime stuff like some may argue he did in pulp fiction but in this movie Mm. uh crime does not pay because the best thing you can get is like a mediocre beach condo and that's probably like the most clean set in the movie (laughs) Yeah, you get Odell Roby, you know, uh, Samuel Jackson. All everybody does is just talk shit about him the yep. whole time. Like, nobody thinks he's a badass. 
They all think he's an idiot. That's true, but at the same time, he is still very convincingly like grounded in terms of how scary he is. We've talked about this previously mm-hmm. on the show, Adam, that it might be his most terrifying performance because he feels like a criminal you might know, especially the way he like manipulates people around, like the whole Chris Tucker scene and how he just yeah. tricks Beaumont, just like, oh, come on, man, I helped you out. You know, I, I gave $10,000 to get you out of there. That's the only way I could help you. This is the only way you can help me. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it is such a great example, especially... It also imbibes a lot in what I think Tarantino loves to do with, like, these earlier movies, which is, like, the moments that happen in these crime movies, like, in between the big set pieces, especially with the moment where um, he puts Beaumont in the car, and then he puts on his gloves, and then he looks over in the back like, this fucking idiot, Uh (laughs) and then turns on the, the fucking radio and everything. Perfect. I think that's just a great example of, like, how he really wants you to live in this pretty shitty mediocre world like even when you know pam greer is going down the street and she's like all hustle especially with like a street life's playing but she's driving by a bunch of like really shitty mini malls yep. <laughs> she's going to a big ball <laughs> like i just i love the contrast of that i think it's a great example of him playing with sort of the tropes of earlier cinema but not in a way that feels kind of obnoxious and like he's poking you in the chest like some of his later movies do and again i just want to because you even said Street Life, I just want to reiterate how great the soundtrack to this movie is. Including having a song sung by a very young Pam Greer when she's mm-hmm. being put into prison, which I didn't realize that until this watch. I'm like, oh, fuck, that's like super young Pam Greer singing that. That's great. Yeah, uh, the soundtrack in this is, like, everyone always talks about, you know, Dick Dale and everything for Pulp Fiction, but I feel like this definitely has a lot more well-timed songs in it as well. But I guess, to, in reference to the soundtrack, what would you say is your favorite needle drop? Well, it's the fucking one Robert Forster listens to over and over and over. <laughs> but it's a great song, the Delphonics, man. Although, it's a very well-placed. Although Street Life is pretty awesome. I love the Delphonics song. I love the Delphonics period, but Street Life might be the, might be the song. That's not even mine. You can take that if you want. I had I'm taking line. it. Street Life! Street <laughs> <laughs> you talking Street Life, bow now bow. Yes. Uh, But, uh, Christian, what's your favorite needle drop in the movie? I would probably agree. I really like the Delphonics songs. I feel like it is very telling that Robert Forrester, like, immediately attaches to that as soon as Jackie introduces him uh, to the band. It's one of those things where it's just like, oh, he's starting to get a thing for her. So into her. So that's the song she played in the morning, so he's going to listen to it over and over and (laughs) over. It's like teenage love on a fucking jungle gym. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but i think that also kind of transitions perfectly into my favorite which is the use of uh didn't i blow your mind this time by bloodstone yeah. when she's getting right. out of jail it, what's so great about that too is that it's this sort of like plays in a way it's like oh this is a big romantic moment but it's played so subtly and i think just emphasizes so much of robert forrester's performance which we which we should mention was nominated for a best supporting actor oscar which, which is he deserved, deserved. Yeah. yes he steals this fucking movie. He really does. I, I mean, I fucking love Robert Forrester in this film. Yeah. And his hair plugs. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it, I mean, his phenomenal hair plugs. Obviously, he did it to make himself feel better. <laughs> Everyone talks about how Tarantino is really good at directing action or how he is able to edit really well, like, for nonlinear storytelling. But this movie really does show how... He brings up the strengths of really good character actors. 
Right, and also the fact that this is one of the few where it's not just, like, a lot of dialogue scenes to show off how over-the-top these people are, and how, like, oh, man, that's a great performance. I mean, there's stuff like that. I mean, I love Samuel Jackson's whole thing about the gun video and the AK-47. Like, that's phenomenal. But at the same time, it's one of the few where I think he likes to emphasize on sort of the quiet meditativeness of these people. Like, the the genius of that uh, moment where, you know, Jackie's coming out is like, everything, this is like the shittiest possible situation. It's like in the middle of the night, and Jackie's coming out, she feels disheveled and humiliated and like shit, and she literally says, can we go to a really dark bar, because I want to drink, but I don't want people to see my face after just coming out of fucking jail. But he doesn't give a shit at all. He thinks that she looks so phenomenal, is so beautiful, and it really works that, like, their connection is like, so genuine, but at the same time, it's very subtly un- unveiled to us. I just love the fact that he, like you mentioned, he like plays the Delphonics and all this other stuff, and even the conversations they have. He's not like you're super purdy, but right, right. He's he's a gentleman the whole time. Yes, he is a complete. Gentleman. You know, I think you looked great. I think you look good. You know, if you if do you want to keep it, do you need to hold on to it, like with the gun and everything. And I love that they don't end up together. Oh god, that I ending fucking is so fucking it. sad. It's so great. I love it that is, ending so much. It's perfect, but it's perfect. It is the perfect because ending for this movie, yes. No way those two would end up together. There's no way. No, but at the same time, it's such a credit to the movie that you believe that connection so much that when they uh-huh. kiss and then the fucking phone rings and she's just like, No, you keep going, you got a business to run, Max. And she wants just him leaves. to go with her. I know. <laughs> go to Spain. Fuck go. Tiny Lister can go take care of the place while you're gone. <laughs> Winston, yeah. Winston, I think is his name. Yes. Yeah. But Tiny Zeus Lister, the president in Fifth Element, he can take care of it. Right. Oh, I love this. Is, this is the other 1997 movie with Tiny Lister and Chris Tucker in it. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, oh, and to go back to that, even the Chris Tucker thing. I think the Chris Tucker Samuel Jackson thing is one of Tarantino's best comedic writing scenes that he's done. I think it's so funny and so quick and so sharp. I just think it works perfect. And it leads to one of his best shots in the movie with the whole wonder as he goes over to the fucking abandoned lot. That's so great. Great wonder. Oh, man. And even another great example like the soundtrack where they have the Strawberry 23, um, but they have like the audio match the fact that like oh it's distant but then it comes back in and then the car turns off and then he shoots him and then the song starts right back up that's such a perfect example of the sound editing even this movie that's the thing is a lot of other Tarantino movies have a lot more flashier examples of like oh the effects like the over the top gore or the soundtrack to all this other stuff this is a great example of like where it's used perfectly and not in a super showy way like any of the stuff. Like even uh, Sally Menk, who we should mention was his longtime editor from when he started with Reservoir Dogs to when um, Inglourious Passage was the last movie before she tragically died the next year um, in a weird hiking accident. It was really unfortunate. But I think you see in a lot of his later movies post Inglourious Bastards how much her editing really affected his work. Because especially in this movie, the editing is so phenomenally well done. She knows when to have a huge, giant one take. And then also when you just have like a back and forth conversation that feels incredibly natural. This movie is smooth like motherfucking butter. God, I love you, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're 100% right. I, like, I, I mean, we talked about already my favorite movie ever on the podcast. We talked about Heat. That is probably one of my favorite movies ever. It's in my top three. This is right up there, though. This is a perfect film for me as far as acting, score, cinematography, direction, everything. And 
that's why it still blows my fucking mind that nobody talks about this movie. Agreed. I think it's just because it's not nearly as flashy as the other ones. But I think that's what makes it so good. Yes, I completely agree with that. This is the one time where I think he really reached a purely mature zenith with his filmmaking that he's never quite been able to do before or since. It just feels like this is just this weird random point that I wish he would go back to constantly. That's what I'm hoping for with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that it feels a bit more like this, where there's like obviously like great dialogue back and forth and all this other stuff, but there's still contemplation. There's still, like, he knows, knows when to kill his darlings um, in terms of the editing stuff. I, I think that's a major criticism I would have of his recent films is that they feel like he's very indulgent in every single way possible versus this is a movie despite being two hours and like 35 minutes long does not feel indulgent for a movie that's this long and especially now with tarantino where you really do sometimes feel like oh this is just him being you know he needs to have this and uh, like talk about his love of this era of cinema you really don't feel the length of this movie at times like you really are just like, wow, this, like, none of this feels like there's no excess to really cut from this movie. I would definitely say, too, this is really subtle for Tarantino. Like, there's no major shootout at the end of this. There's no real, like, obviously there's, there's you know, people get shot in the movie, but it doesn't end up with a huge, like, dramatic standoff. Right, yeah, there's the Mexican standoff thing that just shows off, like, oh man, all the tension, everybody's shooting each other, oh my god. The, the biggest year that happens is just, like, Samuel Jackson comes in, she's like, Ray, he's got a gun, and then he gets shot. That's the most, like, over-the-top violence that really happens. Like, well, that and also Bridget Fonda, which is a stunning scene. Like, that whole one take that happens. Samuel Jackson shooting De Niro in the car, too. Well, that's true. I Yeah, that's right. That is the one moment where there's a lot of gore. Yeah, but it's just arterial spray. You don't see any bullet wounds. You don't see anything. And probably my favorite delivery Samuel Jackson's maybe ever done is, your ass used to be beautiful. Yes! With his fucking goatee. Can we talk about his goatee? <laughs> well, I think actually the hair is a really interesting thing with this one because obviously when we talked to her about Samuel Jackson episode, there was a lot of discussion about wigs. In those two movies yes. in particular. Um, I think works. No, it's phenomenal, I think, because it's an odd choice that you're initially kind of stunned by, like, oh, he's got, like, this weird red hair. Okay, that's interesting. Mm. But what I like is that the hair becomes more and more disheveled as his entire scheme breaks apart, to the point where, by the end of the movie, it looks like he has a lion's mane. And he's right. just purely filled with, like, I am not giving a single shit, and I'm going to maul somebody to death right now. No, I agree. One of my favorite scenes, too, is when he goes to see Jackie the night after she got out of prison. Or no, it is the same night. And he turns all the lights down and everything. And he like grabs her by the throat. And she just shoves the pistol right in his crotch. He's like, is that what the fuck I think it is? <laughs> <laughs> He's turning off all the lights in order to like get control of the situation. Well, he's going to kill her, dude. There's no question. He was going well, to kill her. Right, exactly. Like, he's doing it just to get control of the entire situation, and she can tell is obviously what's happening. And especially mm-hmm. the way he, like, sulks around corners and just leans over. Oh, yeah. It's it's so spooky. It's so... This is why it is the most frightening Samuel Jackson performance. Would you agree with that, Christian? I'd say it is definitely his best role as a villain. Especially the shot when Robert Forrester is dropping off Jackie Brown. And you just see Samuel Jackson in the dark in his car and everything, just staring. 
like the way how it's lit and everything like you can just tell he's getting ready to fucking murder jackie yeah it, it's such a great use of him and you know what we, it's criminal we've talked this much and we've referenced her a bunch we have not talked about pam greer nearly enough fucking crushes it so amazing like robert forster was nominated well deserved but at the same time more love really deserved for her here because this is at a point especially where um she had been very popular in like coffee and several other black exploitation movies and she kind of hit a rut uh we talked about the movie directly before this uh she was in with escape from la <laughs> uh, on the previous episode of the show mm-hmm. not the best use of her necessarily no. but this is an example where it's so tragic that like Tarantino has the sort of reputation of like, oh, he takes certain actors and he like gives them a comeback or he introduces them to people and makes them a star. But weirdly, aside from like the 10 years after Pulp Fiction where Travolta was in a lot of movies, and then I'd argue Samuel Jackson, obviously, with Pulp Fiction as well. He, he made him truly a star that's lasted. Most of the time when he does that, it's so finite and they rarely actually continue to be like big name stars after they do their big Tarantino show off moment. Like, even, like, Christoph Waltz was like, oh, my God, Glorious Bastard, so great. And how many movies has he been used well in since then, in the last ten years? <laughs> I mean, I'd argue there's a couple, like Alita. Yeah, but he wasn't that great in it. He was just better than him and Spectre. Well, weirdly, the, I think the the other good example was Django. He's, like, the, the best part yeah, of Yeah, no, he was fucking fantastic at Django. But... Yeah, you got, you know, Spectre and Green Hornet. Green Hornet was, like, the only big thing after, between Inglorious Bastards and Django that he was in. And it's one of those things where it's like, man, like, you can really tell the difference between directing. Well, right, yeah, I think that's a big problem that happened with both Greer and Robert Forrester, especially Robert Forrester. I good know, one. what a <laughs> fucking bummer. How many bad direct-to-video movies has he done in the last 20 years? <laughs> The thing is, Robert Forrester has one of those faces where he legit doesn't have to say anything. Like at the end of the movie, he's silent. He's watching her leave with her lipstick on his mouth and just the look on his face. like, fuck, does he really wants to go with her? But he, he can't. Or at least he believes he can't. Right, much in the same way that, like, a Pam Greer does here, where it's such a great performance of, like, especially for, you know, Hollywood's an industry that once a woman turns about, like, 30 to 35 somewhere in there just like and you're a mom right and you're not gonna get to be the a female lead who has power but also a lot of like dignity but also a lot of like actual gruff harshness and that's what i love so much about her role is that she is realistically a woman in her like mid 40s but at the same time that doesn't mean that she's like thrown away in this role she feels like a very realistic woman who's gone through a lot of shit but at the same time isn't going to, like, give up about anything. It's like you mentioned that scene before where she could easily be a victim uh, with Samuel Jackson. She turns that situation around and says, fuck you, dude. I'm not going to, like, take this shit. She is not fucking around. No, she's and not. And then when, when she's yeah. even like, I know what you're going to do. You're going to come here and kill me. He's like, Jack, you know. I was like, no, no, no. It's okay. <laughs> like, she's not <laughs> fucking around. Yes. But yeah, also the costuming in this, by the way, between, you know, the airline attendant uniform for her when they're plotting in the mall and everything, the way how Keaton, like, just casually is, like, always walking around in the leather jacket and everything. Between that and Samuel Jackson's costumes as Ordell, like, the costuming in this is really 
really well done. For someone that grew up in the 90s, it's just like, you're just like, yeah, this is just peak 90s fashion right here for everything. Especially Robert De Niro's dad wear throughout the whole movie. <laughs> when he's rocking those fucking, like, bowling shirts later on. <laughs> he's just full oh. on embracing that. And then even, to quote Samuel Jackson, his Salvation Army looking thing that he was wearing <laughs> right out of prison. No, it, it's a great example of, like, how they really pick the perfect costumes to fit the character. Which is to say they're not very traditional costumes all the time. Like, Samuel Jackson's weird, like, neon yellow fucking uh, jacket he wears at a certain point <laughs> and shit like that. Um, but at the same time, this worked phenomenally. Even, I love the weird touch of, like, Jackie is, like, hanging out with Robert Forrester talking about the plan. And what is she wearing? Overalls. You wouldn't figure she'd wear overalls, but fuck it. She wants to wear overalls at home. <laughs> Let her wear fucking overalls. That's her casual wear. Damn, Greer can do whatever the hell she wants. Right, but it, it builds a lot more of an inner life for these characters. All the costumes do. Mm-hmm. They tell you so much about these people. Even, as much as admittingly, she's mostly not wearing a lot. Uh, Bridget Fonda, um, at the same time, like it's the perfect costume for her. She looks like a beach bum. Yeah. Right, she looks like a beach bum. She looks like she could have been in the beach bum. Which I would wish she <laughs> would be, at least in other movies, because... She is one of those actresses where she hasn't been in a movie in about 20 years, obviously. But How has it been that long? It was like around 2001 or so, so it's coming up on that. Wow. Yeah, she, she just wants to, you know, be a mom with her Danny Elfman's kids. Which oh, is good for her. so weird that she's married to Danny Elfman. I'm still... Dude, Kevin Klein and Phoebe Cates. That I believe, though. It's fucking Kevin Klein. Well, I, I mean, I, Okay. <laughs> Like, Phoebe Kate, sure, she's incredibly attractive, but Kevin Klein, though, have you seen A Fish Called Wanda? He <laughs> <This> spoke Italian. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, this is it's a great performance from her in a role that could have easily been so much more throwaway, but she builds a lot more, especially as, like, the youngest person of the cast, of that major cast. She builds so much, like, all the people in here, like, even, like, uh, Michael Keaton and Michael Bowen, I love the fact that they're so desperately trying to seem normal. And fail at every single step to do that for <laughs> Jackie. Or it's just like, oh no, we're just trying to help you out. That's all we're doing. And like, especially when she does that whole thing where she's at the mall and she has the one bag. How quick Michael Keaton is to fucking bomb after her. Just like, I'm gonna go get it right now. <laughs> like, she just walked by, dude. <laughs> Calm the fuck down. Keaton in that is just so funny. Now that you know he's been in just hit after hit like since birdman it's one of those things where it's like no he was still that fucking good like after batman uh everyone is just always like oh you know really after batman he just kind of went away and everything and you know now we know that it was him to take him leaving to take care of his kids but it's it's one of those things that like even when he shows up in movies like this when he was in that movie white noise and everything he still fucking killed it every time. Even his uh, brief one-scene cameo in Out of Sight reprising his role, because that's another Elmore Laird novel where the character of Ray Nicolette appears. I, I like the fact that they- Tarantino insisted that happen as they were shooting like at the same time. So he's just like, no, let, let him go to Universal and do that, Miramax. And you know, he did. And that's a, it's a little fun in-universe thing. So um, I can't wait for all the BuzzFeed articles about same universe, every Elmore Leonard movie. It's the Elmore Leonard novel theory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for God's sake, it's not the fucking MCU. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I love that part in Out of Sight where he's like, hey, Jennifer Lopez, I need to tell you about the Elmore Leonard initiative. <laughs> it's so great. I mean, if Universal what? is involved, they'll they'll put it together like the Dark Universe. Uh, but we've been talking about this movie for quite a bit. 
So I guess let's go into our final thoughts on Jackie Brown. Christian, as our guest, go first. This is definitely a classic movie of the 90s era. Uh, This is definitely Tarantino's most polished movie. I think in terms of dialogue, in terms of acting, and everything about this, it's it's probably his perfect film. Adam? Now... It is my favorite Tarantino movie. I do think it is his most polished film. But I I really got to think, like, is is it the most entertaining film he's done? Well, probably not. Now, if I'm going to most entertaining, it's got to be the Kill Bill movies, just because of the wall-to-wall action, the crazy shit, and everything like that. But I think if you want to see what I would consider his fucking master thesis in filmmaking then it's this because you can always get the great tarantino written movies that, that he started from the bottom up and they're all good like pulp fiction's great nobody can take that away reservoir dogs is great kill bill volume two kill bill volume one they're great movies but for him to take an adapted story and still make it his own to where it still feels like a straight tarantino movie like he wrote it i mean dude this movie's perfect yeah i mean that's why you know doubt what you will about him potentially doing that star trek movie it would still be the second time he's ever done that and that makes me curious enough alone to see how he does that to go back to jackie brown i mean i completely agree with what you guys were talking about i think it's a phenomenal film it's um it's might just be perfect like i've said i've debated a lot about like is it my favorite tarantino movie or not um and i i think i still stand on the side like it probably is his my favorite of his and also his best work in all honesty because it shows a much more mature filmmaker than he's ever really been before since it's got such phenomenal performances that completely go throughout and it's the best use of sort of his stylistic choices without feeling too showy without feeling too much like hey i want to show this off because i love this specific movie it's like no i want to do something that matches this character like a jackie brown i can tie a movie reference into that i can tie using this particular drop. Like, probably my favorite example of that is one that's probably his most obvious, one of his more, like, familiar references early on in this movie with uh, when we do the Across 110th Street thing and Jackie's in that airport and she's doing, essentially, the graduate um, opening, (laughs) pretty much. It's him taking that movie reference of, like, oh, hey, here's in the original graduate, Dustin Hoffman is going on what essentially feels like the death march to adulthood and then realizing, okay, wait, uh, I can take this and turn it into a woman who's taking that death march you think is so scary at 25 and making it the sad reality of at 45. I think that's just such a great example of how when he does it right, he can make a movie reference to something incredibly palpable for the character and not just a really big show-off moment. And that's probably like his crowning example in this movie, which for the record also we can talk about the Across 110th Street might actually be the best. God damn it. Drop. I was just going to say, fuck you, Thomas. <laughs> it's a phenomenal song and how it bookends with like that opening scene and then how crushing it is when she's singing it as like the final shot of the movie is beautiful. It, it's such a great example of, once again, taking a piece of pop culture and making it matter so much for this character uh, who most likely lived in the 70s as a young woman and now is in the 90s and just realized, I'm like, where the fuck do I go? How do I keep going? Where What's my direction? And I think that's it's, it's everything that Tarantino loves to do, but with a far more mature edge, which is why it is... Fuck it, I'm with Adam. It is his best goddamn movie. Jackie Brown is it. 
Don't at me. This might be unprecedented. This might be a first. We're in 100% agreement. Maybe. Who knows? Uh, but let's uh, subvert all that, I guess, with our next feature, which is Death Proof. Buckle up, because a new kind of terror is coming at 200 miles per hour. Ladies, we're going to have some fun. There are a few things as fetching as a bruised ego and a beautiful angel. Is that cowboy wisdom? I'm not a cowboy, Pam. I'm a stuntman. Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. This car is 100% death proof. Only to get the benefit of it, honey, you really need to be sitting in my seat. Only at the Grindhouse. So, Death Proof uh, was a film uh, that Tarantino did in 2007. came out April 6, 2007 as part of his interesting experiment with uh, the Grindhouse movie. Which, for those of you who don't know, Grindhouse is an old 70s era um, exploitation genre film where in, like, seedy theaters that would most likely show porn. They would uh, basically show double features of really trashy movies that were, like, very poorly cut, had very bad prints, that had scratches and stuff. And so Tarantino and his buddy Robert Rodriguez, um, who had worked with him, obviously, a lot, decided, hey, let's do an experiment where we're going to do two movies that are feature-length and we're going to pair them as, like, one bill... And we're going to have in the middle, and I think at the very beginning as well, some fake trailers that we're going to have some other guest directors come in and do. It was an interesting experiment. Uh, It did not pay off very well. No, it failed horribly. Yeah, because Miramax decided, hmm, or no, I'm sorry, this was the Weinstein Company uh, back when that existed. (laughs) Um, It was just like, you know uh, when's the perfect time to put out this tribute to sleazy, greasy, like, you know, horror and fast-driving serial killer movies, all this other shit? Easter weekend. Yeah, because that's, that's what you want with your resurrection. <laughs> you want just nudity and zombies and Kurt Russell eating nachos grossly. That's what you want. <laughs> the most terrifying of those listed images, of course, yes. So, uh, Robert Rodriguez made Planet Terror, which was kind of like a zombie riff, very John Carpenter-y movie. Um, that was the first feature. And he also did a machete fake trailer. And then in between, there was the fake trailer for the werewolf zombie movie that Rob Zombie did. The British exploitation movie that Edgar Wright did. Well, depending on where you were, you got Hobo with a shotgun. Right, which was like a fan contest thing, which I will uh-huh. controversially say the feature film adaptation of Hobo with a shotgun is technically the best of those Grindhouse movies. I 100% agree. I love that fucking movie. We need to talk about that on the show. That's such a great we're gonna, movie. We're going to make it happen. Yes, we will, at some point. Um, and uh, Thanksgiving, of course. How could I forget the, the greatest thing Eli Roth may ever do in his life? The Thanksgiving trailer. Oh, there's no question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Fuck that guy, too. I mean, yeah, he shows up in this movie, Adam. Isn't he great not playing himself oh, at all? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and of course, after those trailers, then we had uh, Death Proof. And immediately... I didn't see Grindhouse in the theater, I think, because I couldn't quite make it out that Easter weekend in particular, and it quickly disappeared from theaters. Christian, you said you hadn't seen Death Proof, so you haven't seen even the Grindhouse thing at all, right? I never saw Grindhouse, which, it's kind of a weird thing. Like, I remember hearing about it when it came out, but I was 50, uh, so I couldn't get into a theater on my own, and then everyone that I knew that would have gone like, just went, and I just missed out. Yeah, but I'm guessing you saw this in the theater, Adam? No. 
but I was old enough to, at least. <laughs> so you have no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't see it in theater because I didn't want to go sit in the theater for four hours. I mean, that was kind of my thing at the time. It was, and I, you know, I like to go see a movie with other people. I, I'm not one to go by myself. I mean, I have done it. And actually, every time I do it, I do enjoy it. But I do like to go see movies with other people. And I couldn't find no one to go see this with me. So the second this came out to own, I bought it. Now, keep in mind, so when you say this, that's a bit convoluted. I bought the double feature. Yes. The, the thing was that they initially released, when these were on home video, both these movies as separate movies. Which is so weird that they did that first. Of, like, they have the extended cuts of both Planet Terror and Death Proof that are about 30 minutes longer each. They're, like, put in a lot more stuff. And then about two years after that, they put out Grindhouse, like, on home video. It, uh-huh. Then again, it was weird because also I saw the whole Grindhouse feature first on pay-per-view of all things. Oh, good lord. But anyway, regardless. So I think it's also important to establish, Adam, the cut that you've watched really is only the Grindhouse 30 minutes shorter cut, right? Well, no, I owned the uh, individual ones on DVD. I saw the director's cut of both. And then when they released the special edition of Blu-ray, like the Grindhouse pack, I owned that as well. I've seen both versions. Right. And then I've seen both versions as well. In fact, I rewatched at least I rewatched the Grindhouse cut, and then I watched the scenes that were different from the um, director's cut version. And Christian, uh, I believe you saw the director's cut version. This is your first time seeing it in general. Yes. Uh, this was actually the first time I've seen it. I'm very surprised by this one. In a good way! Um, I'm still kind of muddling it over a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Like, here's how I feel like. The way how we were all about Jackie Brown and everything, about how it's, it's perfect and everything, how this is, you know, fantastic and everything. This one, I'm feeling a little bit opposite of it. Not that I'm saying it's outright bad but it's like this has so much of tarantino's excesses that i'm just like uh definitely might be tarantino's weakest of his eight almost nine movies so far oh boy (laughs) (laughs) well well adam uh what do you what are your thoughts on death proof well my thing about it is it's it is tarantino definitely playing up his tarantino character it's definitely him showing his influences and what he loves about, you know, American cinema and dirty cinema and grindhouse and black exploitation, everything up to an 11. But I'm okay with it when he goes full bore. He knows exactly the movie he's trying to make here. He knows exactly what it's for. It's supposed to be a 60s, 70s exploitation movie or a black exploitation movie or a Roger Corman type movie. And that's what it's supposed to be. And that's exactly what you get in that aspect. I think he pulled it off very, very well. I would definitely say as someone that, you know, is familiar with like that era of movies, this does kind of play kind of like uh Russ Meyer's faster pussycat kill kill a little bit especially towards the end with, like, Rosario Dawson, especially playing up kind of the Betty Page angle. Yeah. I love the Janet Leigh psycho switch that they give you. I mean, you firmly believe in the very beginning of the movie that those girls are the main girls. 
you spend a lot of time with them, but then they are brutally murdered. And then they give you a whole second set of characters. And I liked both sets of girls equally. There was no point where I thought either of them were less equal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I have similar thoughts to Christian where I don't hate this movie necessarily because this is the one that I've seen get the most sort of like hate in terms of like, oh, what's Tarantino's one bad movie is Death Proof. And it's like, I kind of agree in terms of I think this is the one I have the most mixed feelings on necessarily. Because even with some of those other movies that he's done post this where they are very over the top, very silly, um, can feel kind of like elongate and scattershot. I at least think he's going for more interesting things with those movies versus he, I agree, is doing a really good job of, like, replicating the Grindhouse movie. I think for that alone, it's better than Planet Terror, which I would argue kind of abandons that. I think Edgar Wright actually did an interview where he said this pretty well when he was asked about, like, oh, what do you think of those two movies? He's like, well, Planet Terror is, like, the movie that when you saw the poster, you were like, oh my god, I can't wait to see this movie, and it delivered all the stuff on that poster... Versus Death Proof is the movie where you see the poster, like, oh my god, I can't wait to see this movie. And it feels more like a Grindhouse movie where they have two giant, massive action set pieces, and they kind of fill time in between them with a lot of dialogue scenes that aren't necessarily the best. Right, yeah. Right, which I think, at the to, to its credit, I think that makes it more interesting on that level, especially some of the stuff we'll get into, like, with Kurt Russell and all that. But at the same time, I feel like that's also kind of a crutch he uses to make dialogue that, quite frankly, is inane at points, I think, especially in the first half. Um, it's a lot of admittingly, you know, something I'm not against, where it's like, it's a bunch of, you know, women together who are, like, wanting to go out and have a fun time. They talk about having, you know, sex out there on the in the cabin and all this other stuff. I'm not against that, necessarily. I just think the way that he sort of makes dialogue, it's very much intentionally bad, in a way that kind of reminds me, in not nearly as bad a level, but to a similar area of like the oh we're making a bad schlocky movie on purpose and the kitsch is kind of short-lived in terms of how interesting it is kind of like a sharknado it's not nearly as bad as a sharknado <laughs> don't throw anything at me adam um Holy fuck. <laughs> but i think it it has some of those problems in terms of like oh hey i'm making an intentionally bad movie it's like great you got another trick up your sleeve motherfucker <laughs> it just feels like that but, I mean, I get what you're saying, though. I, I can't disagree with you on a lot of it, but I don't think he was intentionally making a bad movie. I think he was trying to make a good movie in the realm of what those movies would have been at the time. I can see that's what he's striving for, for sure. Okay, and it just didn't land for you? It lands a lot more in the second half. I think that's where I disagree with you in terms of, oh, I like both sets equally. I think that first half especially, it's a lot more of these ladies who are just made to be essentially like the slasher movie trope characters uh who like oh we're gonna go out to the you know beach and have fun at camp crystal lake but instead of having jason show up about you know at near the end of the first act it's about halfway through the movie and even then jason's eating nachos which isn't a bad thing necessarily well well, right i I think that might be the reason why i like the first half so much because that is the build-up of the stuntman mike character the second half is just him terrorizing them. Well, right, but I think what's more interesting is, like, you have him in the first half of the movie, which we need to talk more about Kurt Russell, because he's admitting, like, I think, Christian, you can agree, even with your problems with the movie, Kurt Russell's not one of them. He is amazing. Admittedly, Kurt Russell is one of my favorite actors. He is the star of probably my favorite movie of all time, 
John Carpenter's The Thing. John You're in Carpenter. my cool book. It's one of those things that just seeing him in this, Kurt Russell is amazing. Like, the whole time, even him wearing the uh, icy hot fucking jacket. You're just like, all right, Kurt Russell's the only person that could pull off that fucking jacket. I mean, he almost looks like, um, it's almost like, is this a secret sequel to Drive? Like, is Drive the prequel to this movie? <laughs> I was literally going to say, is fucking Ryan Gosling, his son, like, he inherited his jacket? Because they totally <laughs> took that from it. I mean, a bit, it, it feels like that. Uh, but no, I think he works so phenomenally well, I think because he is sort of like, in the first half, a shark. Like, literally, his fucking gray hair is stylized to make him look like a goddamn shark. Where he's just, like, circling around, has his charms, but there's always something sinister underneath it. But even though I would argue the prey he's after, for the most part, isn't that interesting. I'll give credit to, of the earlier ensemble, I really like uh, Vanessa Fertillo as Arlene. Yeah, the main the main girl. Right, yeah. I think she is so interestingly distinctive, and obviously she's very attractive, but in a distinctive way. And also, at the same time, she has more of a naturalism that I don't quite feel from the other actresses. I feel like everyone else is playing it up a bit too much in a way that I'm just like, okay, this is... It feels labored. It doesn't feel that interesting. It's just like, oh, hey, I'm going to talk about us going to the cabin, fucking this guy, and I'm a hot radio DJ, and look how tall I am. It's like, yeah. I mean, to be fair, it's also a thing. Of like, if this was redone to have like men talk this way, it would also be cruel and excruciating, and most likely an Eli Roth movie. But at, at the same time, I think she has the most interesting naturalism, and in the extended cut, she actually gets to do her big dance, which Christian, in the Grindhouse version... It cuts to a thing that says "real missing" and then cuts to them going to the parking lot. And that ah, okay. That's ridiculous. By the way, I'd be interested to see the Grindhouse cut just to see how like it plays off in in that format. I will definitely say that. Speaking of cruel and excruciating, uh, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, Tom. Eli Roth at the bar. Oh, <laughs> uh, what a fucking it's... dude, bro, asshole. It's so much more him as Donnie in Inglorious Bastards, where it's like, yeah, it's just him playing it up for yachts. Right next to his buddy Omar Doom, who was also in that movie, as the, the right. other guy who was like always by his side. Which, by the way, if you're ever at a bar and you saw someone who looked like Kurt Russell looks like in this movie, would you talk shit about him? Oh, no. He has a huge scar in his oh, eye. <laughs> he instantly looks like the toughest man in the room. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to fuck with that guy. But also, I think to go back to my original point about Kurt Russell, what I like is the fact that in the first half of the movie, he's the shark that's skulking around his prey and then eventually gets to them and mauls them in his own fashion. But then the second half of the movie does such a great job of deconstructing that. What makes it so much more interesting is him sulking after his prey in this case. And then the moment he is at all had his armor pierced, he crumbles. I love that. Oh, dude, he cries so I hard. I love that so much. Him with the wild turkey, like, oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, God. It's just this guy's just all, like, very cheap machismo in a way that's so interesting. I think that does a better job displaying it than, say, in the director's cut, there's, I think, the worst scene that possibly in any version of this movie, oh, which God. is the entire, like, black and white slash, it goes to color at one point, but all the stuff at that gas station and the... Yeah, right awful. in between. That is the worst. Element. And that's like a 15 minute long fucking section. I know. I agree. It just proves how uh, valuable Sally Mank is. It was as, a, as an editor. Because <laughs> she just saw this right. like, Quentin, just cut all of this. Like, oh, what do you think, Sally? Uh, there's one giant fucking highlighter over this whole bit. <laughs> just get rid of it. <laughs> 
that sequence in particular, I compared this movie to Russ Meyer's uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. But instead of in Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, where Russ Meyer was kind of satiating his boob fetish, that whole sequence is just there to satiate Tarantino's foot fetish. Wait, wait, does Tarantino have like a thing for feet? I, I was not aware what? of this, Christian. <laughs> now, what I will say about the about the two groups of women in this. Mm-hmm. I prefer the first group only because in the second group, and forgive me, I don't know her name, but the one she was in Rent and things like that. Uh, Rosario Dawson? No, not Rosario. The other one from Rent. They were both in Rent. The the main girl with the afro. She came off so phony to me. Yes, that is Tracy Thoms. Yes, that's her. Yeah, she was very phony to me. And she came off almost annoying. I, I don't know if I quite agree with, like, the particular person, um, but I do think the weak link in all of that, and I think it's way more on Tarantino and how he uses her, is uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Because, one, it's such a nothing of a character. And then, yeah, two, the worst, I think, another element, admittingly, of this movie that's kind of garbagey, but in a way that's like, oh, hey, we're where the excuse comes up. I'm like, oh, hey, that's kind of like those old movies where it's like, hey, we're going to leave our friend as collateral to maybe implied be sexually assaulted by this weird... Oh, that's 100% what's going to happen, too. Yeah. yeah. And she, it's just like a gulp. She says gulp and all that. And she's just like, this. what's funny about this? This is just terrible. That was a really uncomfortable sequence, yeah. But I, no, I agree with you. I, I can't agree with you. But again, those scenes in these types of movies, those Grindhouse movies, were everywhere. So again, I, I oh, literally think he was paying just straight homage to those movies well I mean, tarantino you know some things come out about them oh yeah like especially the whole thing about like the uma thurman crash makes this movie play very differently yes it really really does and it, it has changed my opinion about the film a little bit but i still don't think that this is his worst movie what would you say is his worst movie? Oh man, maybe, maybe Inglorious Bastards or Hateful Eight. I could see more Hateful Eight, but I think I'm a, a much bigger fan of Inglorious Bastards. Like, no, but Christian, what was before this your least favorite Tarantino movie? It would probably either be Hateful Eight or Inglorious Bastards. That's a saying. Like, it's because like those are his lower tier movies. Hateful Eight. I I feel like it was one of those things that I got caught up in the swarm of like, oh, you need to see it in the road show, and then I was just like, eh. Yeah, admittedly, I also was one of those dorks just like, oh, they're playing a seventy millimeter of my local theater. I have the fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I want to get back to so Christian with Death Proof. You haven't talked much about. It. Do you kind of agree with our issues with, like, the different splitting of, like, the, the two halves of the actors? What are your feelings on, like, sort of how Tarantino especially uses, like, this sort of quote-unquote female empowerment in this case with Death Proof? It's kind of like how I have issues with Sucker Punch, where it's something that is brought up as female empowerment, but it's also just very exploitative and everything. That it's it kind of takes me out of it. I do feel like this still is a very strong movie, but... I would say that this is, you know, more Quentin Tarantino. Just I, I made Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. I have fuck you money. I can do whatever I want. I will say I did enjoy the Mi- Michael Park, you know, monologue where it's him and his son talking about, you know, all of the motives of Kurt Russell. And reprising his uh, Texas Ranger McGraw character that he originated in From Dust Till Dawn is written by Tarantino. He's appeared several times in other movies as his character. And even Edgar... Um, James Parks plays Edgar McGraw, who's like the son, who's also been, I think, originated in one of the From Dust Till Dawn direct-to-video sequels, if I'm right. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, and since I've that's seen actually, and since that's actually Michael Parks' son, he's always referred to as son number one. Yes, right, and also uh, you wouldn't know this, Christian, but the doctor in that scene, who's the daughter, is actually a character from Planet Terror. Oh, okay. Yes, which is a cute thing. She's like, oh, she pops up here. Um, I'd argue she's probably yeah. better used here than she is in Planet Terror um, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Oh my God, yes. Which, speaking of which, also I would say Rose McGowan as well. This may be her best performance in any movie. I think her playing off of Russell in the first half of the movie is probably like one of her better performances in terms of like she's ultimately a victim, but at the same time she doesn't feel like she's constantly that. She feels like a, as real as a woman could be in the scenario of a Quentin Tarantino grindhouse movie. <laughs> Terrifying sequence. Yes, for sure. Yeah. 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 The best line of the whole movie is definitely the, this car's 100% death proof, baby, but you really gotta be sitting in my seat. <laughs> well, that that's too uh... bad for you. You had a 50-50 shot if you're going left or going right. <laughs> like, damn, dude, Stuntman Mike was not fucking about. That sequence especially is one of the reasons why I'm like, there's no other actor that really could have delivered that except Kurt Russell. Because it's like, it plays so well into the way how he's kind of like Jack Burtoning his delivery with that. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. It comes off almost playful. Where I could see any other actor around his age doing it would become just terrifying. Like, could you see Kevin yeah. Hart, William Hurt as Stuntman Mike? They would just be terrifying instantly. Or Harrison Ford. He'd have a fucking earring and a, and a helicopter. Well, I mean, oh, you, you, would, you would be scared because it's just like, did you smoke pot before you got in the car? Uh-huh. You can't drive. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, you gotta be sitting in my seat. <laughs> Let's get more nachos, kid. <laughs> I love these nachos so much. Oh, my God. I've seen Aqua Teed. Uh, but, uh, Christian, I'm sorry, to go back, um, who would you say is your preferred of, like, the groups of women here between the two that we get? I think the first group of women are very interesting. I would have liked to have seen if they were able to do role reversal. But I do like the second group of women because I do like Rosario Dawson a lot. I think Zoe Bell, especially as a stunt woman being able to kind of, you know, flex a little bit more on screen and everything. Especially with, you know, you hear about how some people, like, you know, are getting into a lot of really horrific accidents. It's really good to see a stunt person being able to be, like, given the spotlight instead of having to kind of hide away from it. In terms of that, I definitely say that I prefer the second group of women just because if you get to see not only the characters giving the comeuppance to Stuntman Mike, but you also get to see, like, another side of Hollywood that doesn't always get, like, props for their craft. Right, which we're apparently going back to given Brad Pitt's character in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a stuntman. And Kurt Russell's yeah. apparently a fellow stuntman. Who knows? Shared universe. Edgar McGraw. He's gonna be stuntman Mike's father or something. I will say my favorite part of that second sequence is especially after the major, major crash. Mm-hmm. You just hear Kurt Russell screaming and crying. Yes. It's one of those things that you've never seen him do in any of his other movies. And, like, it's one of those things that it's like, man, he's, like, really, really laying it on there. No, yeah, the whole finale um, car chase sequence is immediately amazing. It's one of the best car chases I've seen in recent 
you know film history where that's kind of become like a dying light kind of thing it, it's uh it definitely works yeah I, I agree but i also agree with christian that i think at least you get more shades of the second group of women as characters where it's not like oh hey we're waiting for a guy to come to the bar or we're just constantly are talking about how much we want to fuck dudes um it's, it's just all about how much they like obsess over either these men or else or just hanging out uh versus in this case it's like, hey, we're going to also talk about, like, hey, these weird life experiences. Like, I nearly fell in a ditch. Zoe did, and then she was completely fine. I could have fucking died. Shit like that. Like, those conversations I find a lot more interesting than sort of, like, we, the prattle that we get earlier on. Um, and I just, I like those actresses a bit more. Even Tracy Thoms, I, I think, is, like, fun in, like, admittingly ways that skirt on um, a best black friend kind of stereotype. For sure, but... I think that might be my problem with that well, character. Well, right, yeah, I can see that, but at the same time, when she goes full on, like, oh, I can't let you go away, and just starts, like, ramming Kurt Russell's car, she's like, that. I fully get into that. I think all those actors do a phenomenal job with that. Even, like, Zobel picking up that fucking pipe, and she's like, come on, let's go, let's kick his ass, like a javelin and shit like that. Which, by the way, Zoe Bell hanging on the fucking roof of that car. Yeah. Is fucking insane. And it was all real. I love that it's a stupid game of chicken that they fucking play. Yeah, <laughs> it's, just, I know. it's like, oh, that's what you do when you're off time? What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Shit like that. Um, but we, we've been talking about this for a bit long. Um, so I guess I want to go into our final thoughts here with a Christian start first. Uh, your final thoughts on Death Proof. Well, it might not be Tarantino's strongest movie. It definitely does still have some charm to it this really makes me think though that you know if he really wants to stop at 10 movies i'd like to see him do an outright horror movie whether it is slasher or paranormal or anything i feel like he's done really good scenes with really great tension but i'd like to see him do that for throughout the whole movie in a horror setting. Adam? Well, I do not think this is his worst movie by, uh, well, maybe not by far. That might be pushing it. But I do think that if they were given an assignment, him and Robert Rodriguez, to make a grindhouse movie, I think Tarantino nailed it in spades. I think this is a very fun send-up of the 60s, 70s, dirty, low-budget movies. I think it's fun. Um, it is a little dialogue heavy, but I think just to see it for Kurt Russell alone, I think it's worth it. Yeah, I, I would still say it's his worst. I would say, honestly, prior to this, if this technically counts, I would say probably Kill Bill Volume 1 would be my worst. And that's not saying that it's a bad oh. movie. I dig that movie. But at the same time, it's kind of like it's all of like the stunts and all that and not much of the character stuff you get in Volume 2, which I prefer. But uh, at the same time, I still don't, like, hate this movie by any stretch. I think this one is a curious experiment, and I give him credit in terms of, like, he still got really good performances out of a lot of people, especially Kurt Russell. And he's committing to his bit, which I can respect, but at the same time, it's not something that stays consistent throughout the whole runtime, especially with the director's cut version, which is the most indulgent, just bullshit, that I... I can't emphasize enough how much I hate the gas station scene. I do respect Death Proof for what it is, and I think there's a lot of fun stuff in there. But at the same time, it definitely is his weakest, I think. If, if nothing else, the fetishization that's supposed to turn to, like, oh, it's empowerment that Christian kind of alluded to, I agree, is a bit hypocritical, especially considering what's come out about, like, sort of his uh, 
you know, oh man, I love stunt people, especially stunt women, so awesome. And it's like, well, could have done that with a uh, fucking Uma Thurman, couldn't you? Just saying. Anyway, <laughs> that's a bleak note to end that conversation on. But before we go and do our picking for next week, which you should definitely stick around to at the very end of the show, we have some feedback to read because over at DEDV Pod, which is the Facebook and Twitter page handle, uh, we asked all of you, as we do every Monday, about what are your favorite and least favorite things related to the topic we're doing. So for Quentin Tarantino films, uh, you guys, including James Rodriguez to start, says... Uh, Pulp Fiction is one of my all-time favorites and spawned a host of phenomenal Samuel Jackson lines. I also am a big fan of The Hateful Eight, a tense affair with Jackson as makeshift gun-toting Miss Marple. Um, As for worse, Death Proof is a concept which I feel was executed in a lackluster manner, especially mentioned for his tact on cameo in Django Unchained, complete with awful Australian accent. Mark Anthony King II says, When I was younger, I probably would have said Kill Bill, but as I grew older, Jackie Brown just stuck with me more. I love the wit, the characters, and their dynamics, the soundtrack. It became my favorite QT movie of all time. Uh, For worst or least of mine, yeah, not a big fan of Death Proof, even though I like the second half of that better. It's not a movie I revisit a lot. Cameron Castellano says his last film, according to a meme, uh, looks like it will end bloody and pointlessly. Should be a lot of fun. Stephen D. at Waiting FTH says, My faves of his uh, are Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. Have kind of lost interest after the second Kill Bill and still haven't seen Hateful Eight. Um, I'm also a big fan of Natural Born Killers and True Romance. I honestly don't think they'd be better films if he directed them, though. And uh, Will Torres says, uh, Best Jackie Brown, because it's his most grounded and has the best character acting. Worst Death Proof. It's a great car chase inside probably his most boring, forced dialogue and awful, interesting characters. Tarantino prides himself in writing strong female characters, but these are the most shallow and misogynistic laden characters he has ever created. Also, the fact that the story was likely inspired by Quentin Tarantino basically endangering the life of his Kill Bill star. Uh, the obvious fetishization to have a blonde character get killed in a stunt car is not only gross, it exposes an awful, cruel side I can't still get over of Quentin. And then Charles Anthony Ritter the fourth says, Hot take, The Hateful Eight is his best work. Oh. That's a hot take for this room. Oh, no. He just loves visualizing Samuel L. Jackson getting a blowjob in the snow. <laughs> I guess. I mean, to be fair, I actually like, I would say, that first half of the movie that has Samuel Jackson in it a lot. I also, it's probably the best use of Walton Goggins in a movie, which is to say there hasn't... Uh, yeah. It's not a high bar, because he's mostly miscast and wasted, for sure. But I think he, his character was probably the, the most interesting one that kind of kept living throughout most of it. Um, but... At the same time, there is a lot of, like, indulgence that I'm not the hugest fan of in that movie. But I still, I really enjoy it. I would need to revisit it because it has been, like, since it was in theaters that I've seen it. But, I mean, I don't hate that one nearly as much as, I don't know, you guys, apparently. Or at least Adam does. I still enjoyed it, but it's probably also because, you know, Kurt Russell in the snow, like, I'll always give that a pass, just because... Michael Madsen lays in a goddamn bed the whole oh, movie. Oh, he's barely a part in that movie, though. That's your, like, big craw. It's Tarantino just showing how well he can write dialogue for three hours. I get it. it but nothing fucking really happened. I just, I don't like the movie. I'm glad the consensus at least seems to be that everyone digs Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. I'm glad that's gotten a lot more cultural appreciation on our sphere. We got the right fans. I think Netflix kind of uh, did that because Jackie Brown was on Netflix for a long time. 
And I think a lot of people got to revisit it. And uh, no, I definitely agree. I love that people found it and really, really got into it. Because Quentin Tarantino rolled the Pulp Fiction high forever until Kill Bill, honestly. Jackie Brown was completely lost in the wake. Yeah, and admittedly, in that time, he also did write some of these movies that were mentioned here that he didn't direct. Um, how do you guys feel about those, by the way? Like, True Romance, Natural Born Killers, and I guess also from Dust Till Dawn. Funny enough, I haven't, I've never seen Natural Born Killers. Oh. I do really love True Romance. And uh, from Dust Till Dawn, it was a movie that I really loved as a teenager. I need to revisit that one, though. It's not going to hold up, dude. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to hold <laughs> up. It's it's definitely one of those teenage boy movies where you're like, this is the coolest movie I've ever seen. You watch it now, it's still very entertaining. But it's not going to be as good as it might have been when he first saw it. Because it was full of action, tough dudes, and hot chicks. So you get older and you're like, well, there's literally nothing else to this film. I mean, it lives and breathes on that for sure. Um, though it still is fun. I mean, it, I guess that's another one where I like both halves. But I, as I grow older, I definitely do kind of prefer, like, I want to see more of the Gecko Brothers doing weird shit. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, but True Romance. I love True Romance. To me, True Probably. Romance has... One of the greatest Gary Oldman performances of all time. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, he, he is amazing in that movie. I mean, that movie's amazing alone just because everyone's in that movie. Like, everyone. Everyone. Dennis I mean, Hopper, Christopher in- Walken scene is one of the greatest scenes ever put to film, mm-hmm. honestly. As, as a Sicilian, is, I, I can I, confirm. <laughs> uh, James Gandolfini, his scene where he's basically tearing up the room. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's one of the most brutal scenes. It's so hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, though, Natural Born Killers can kind of be that. I know um, that Tarantino has kind of disowned what Oliver Stone did with that movie. And I'll agree, it feels more on the verge of, like, Oliver Stone than it does Tarantino necessarily. His, his stuff pops up in there. At the same time, I still do really enjoy that movie. Robert Downey Jr., holy fuck. Oh, Robert Downey, yeah, Robert Downey Jr., that's a very interesting example of, like, him in that weird quasi-drug space. Post-Brat Pack... Mm-hmm pre-Iron Man, where it's like, oh man, you're just going wild with this. And a real, another fake Australian accent. Uh, yeah. As is the theme, which I, that's the thing, honestly, I would say more, I have a lot more issues with Django Unchained than I necessarily do even Hateful Eight. I think Django Unchained has a lot more problems with, like, trying to balance the Western and the black exploitation aesthetic and not quite working. It also feels the most, like, laborious in terms of how long it is. I know it's shorter than Hateful Eight, but I feel it a lot more with, especially on rewatches, uh, Django Unchained. It just feels kind of endless at points. There's great moments, and I think it is still a movie I really enjoy. I mean, DiCaprio's great in it and uh, and all that, but also I do feel like Jamie Foxx is just such a cipher in that movie, which is such a bummer. Until, like, the last, I'd say, 20 minutes or so. Like, when he becomes, quite frankly, like Bugs Bunny. <laughs> he goes, like, right. full-on, like, cartoonish character, quite frankly, at that point. Jamie Foxx isn't that good. See... I, I hear that, and I raise you stuff like Collateral and even some of his like other like late 90s, early 2000s work. Collateral and Ray. What else can you throw at me, honestly? I mean, Ali also, I would argue. I think he's phenomenal in Ali in a very small part. I, I think the, the problem is just that Jamie Foxx is a phenomenal supporting character, usually, or when he has someone to actually like, okay, I'll give go you up that. against. I'll give you- it's just more a problem of like he definitely has Christoph Waltz is way more the lead of that movie than... He oh, is quite And frankly. he's fantastic in it. Oh, yeah, he's great. Um, but, yeah, the Australian accent thing with Tarantino, yeah. Even, like, my dad, who doesn't really, like, nitpick movies that much, it's just like, why the fuck did he show up with a shitty Australian accent? 
<laughs> Django, I really did enjoy it when it came out in the theater. I've seen it a couple times since then. Definitely does have a lot of very awkward moments just because it does have, you know, a lot of a lot of uses of the N-word in it and everything. Um, that's something I... That's something I was thinking about bringing up with Jackie Brown, because at least in Jackie Brown, like, the people saying the N-word are black people, so it's, like, not as uncomfortable. I mean, clearly, we're the three most qualified people to talk about that, Christian, obviously. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> for sure, obviously. Uh, That's but... why I went to college for. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but it's one of those things that, like, it is such a problem with Tarantino that I'm just like, that, that movie has the most egregious examples of it. The time it takes a... place, too, though. I mean, it has to factor in. Of, of course, the historical context does factor right. in. But, um, but to, to a bit of an argument there, how historically accurate is this movie, necessarily? Oh, zero. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> zero. Jerry Fox had sunglasses and they weren't invented for 30 more years. No, after the movie not at all. So I, I don't know if that's necessarily the biggest you know, defense of it either. It's just like, I, I get you obviously like having, you know, racist piece of shit characters use it, but also it's just like, oh, did they use it as every other word in the fucking sentence that they're saying? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, that's another discussion that I don't want to keep having. Anyway, uh, thank you for all that feedback there about Quentin Tarantino, but we also had a brief bit of feedback from our previous guest, uh, Desmond Alexander Peel. Uh, who was on our Overrated, Underrated episode that recently came out, said he just finished to our last episode, the remakes one, and he said, uh, just listened, and awesome episode, guys. Thank you, Desmond. Thank you, Desmond. You are a gentleman and a scholar. Yeah, love to have Desmond on, and maybe we might appear on his show at some point. Maybe. Maybe, who knows, maybe that's in the cards. <laughs> yeah, and also, uh, if you're new because that, that one episode has become our second most downloaded episode ever, uh, welcome, I'm glad you Thanks. stuck around. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, but we also want to thank some other people, we want to thank Chris Oliver for the intro and natural music used in our show, listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com, thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that we use for our show, she accepts commissions at 502rs.com slash eescarta, and thanks of course to our guest, Mr. Christian Alvarez. Christian, uh, you got anything to plug, anything on the social medias that the kids use? Uh, nah, very much a hermit, maybe eventually I'll come back to plug a SoundCloud or something, but until then, thank you for having me on, sir. Oh, no problem, Christian, for sure. But your job's not done, because we'll put a pin in that in a bit. But before we do that, some house cleaning. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, or you can email us, feedback at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. I have my own individual account, at NotTheWho'sTommy, uh, where I say things on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. Uh, right now, you there would be a Lion King review out uh, for the new one, um, spoilers, I didn't feel the love that night when I saw it. It's fucking bad. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can, uh, find Adam, meanwhile, I guess, palling around with Christian doing God knows what. Yep. I'm guessing that you're recreating the scene from Wizard of Our Dogs with the, you know, the knife in the ear and all that. Yeah, but only on myself. He's singing a very bad karaoke version of Stuck in the Middle with you <laughs> while I'm doing it. Oh, you're both wearing $10 suits. 
Yep. <laughs> but uh, please, for more great content like that, subscribe to us on iTunes or on various other platforms. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're on most places where you can find podcasts, YouTube even. Um, subscribe there and also make sure to rate, review, or at least share the show around just to give us some more visibility and have more people become interested. Please, for God's sakes, you guys, I have a child. <laughs> you know how much money this podcasting gig could get us? I mean, clearly just rake in the cash. Um, right! Right, but before we sign off for the evening, we gotta talk about our picks for next week, which, those of you that are new out there, um, each week, Adam and I have two movies. Uh, one has two good movies, one has two bad that fit our topic for the next week. And so here, we usually pick a number between one and ten, each of us, for the opposite person's picks, in order to pick our good and bad feature. But Christian gets to hold the gun for this Mexican standoff and go ahead and shoot between our two choices here for our topic in honor of um, Hobbs and Shaw's coming out. And that stars a pretty prominent pro wrestler in his own right, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He's not that. Nah, not at all. Um, he's in the small indie movie, uh, with Jason Statham. Jason Statham, yes. <laughs> he's some kind the of, he's like a French new neorealist yeah. actor of some sort, for sure. We're doing a film starring wrestlers, which, uh, Christian, you a fan of the wrestling? Um, I'm kind of an on and off fan of, uh, professional wrestling. I do enjoy it when it is very well done, though. Wrestlers appearing in films, what's a, what's a good example for you? What's one of your favorites? Uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper and They Live. Hell yeah. That's probably the best. That might be I mean, yeah. not... the best, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, um, that's not one of my picks, because I have the two good movies this time, and Adam has the two bad ones. So, Christian, for my two good choices first, number between one and ten. Alright, I'm gonna go for you, Tom, seven. Alright. Directly at number seven is a movie that actually features The Rock, but not one of the ones I would argue is very discussed. It feels like it's one that kind of came and went um, a few years ago. But one that I think is the best film, I would argue, of this often maligned director, Michael Bay's Pain and Gain. Oh, man. Oh. Good choice. Yeah. Nice. That was not one I expected. Yeah, one where I would argue The Rock shows his better acting muscles, especially. That's why I decided to pick that one. I agree. Yes. Um, and then at number three... I had one that's probably one of the more obvious choices I had because of the late great Andre the Giant, Princess Bride. Because, of course. Oh, man. What a fantastic yeah. movie. That's got to come back on our uh, on when we do our uh, redemption. So good. We, we, we should definitely talk about it at some point. But, Christian, now for Adam's two bad picks. Number two, one and ten. Okay. For Adam, I'll go with four. At number two, I have the Hulk Hogan starring No Holds Barred. Oh, boy. Hulk Hogan, everyone's yeah. favorite. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, buddy. A master thespian. Yep. And at number nine, I had the Jesse Ventura, Abraxas, Guardian of the Universe. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah, that's rock for the best, man. <laughs> uh, well. That was going to be something. Yeah, that, that'll be interesting for sure. That sounds like a very good time. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely be talking about it. A lot of gain and pain. So much pain. But until then, everybody, um, let's have a very long, drawn-out uh, dialogue sequence set to an old 70s song. Long live Giant Condor. I don't, I, I don't I get know that. Great Tarantino line. Perfect. <laughs> I love my Thank you. my fi- you, know, you see you. my favorite Steelers Will song is actually Giant Condor. It's a B side. You know, you said that. <laughs> it's really cool. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't do an impression until just now. Perfect. Good night, Good night. everybody. Good night.